I've seen people, they're like, I need to hire a COO. I read a book, gotta hire a COO. And I'm like, you don't even have an assistant. Welcome to a special edition episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, featuring some of the most forward-thinking ideas and insights when it comes to attracting and hiring A players. You don't need a COO. You need to learn how to work with an assistant, let alone a COO. COO could cost you 300 grand. An assistant could cost you as little as 10,000 a year full-time if you wanna go international. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at my conversations with podcast guests who have redefined the hiring process. As you'll see, the hiring process is important no matter what industry you're in. A great team needs a great leader, both of which require intentional action. From attracting top talent to onboarding and retaining key players, this is an episode for those looking to level up. You have to treat recruiting the same way that you treat sales. And it's not about how many people can you get through the door. It's really about how many impressions can you make on the outside world for those people to want to work here. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. To kick things off, we revisit my conversation with Dan Martell award-winning entrepreneur and best-selling author of Buy Back Your Time, Get Unstuck, Reclaim Your Freedom, and Build Your Empire. Dan believes that as you start hiring people to do the stuff you don't enjoy, you'll gain more time to do the things you love, which are usually your highest-value tasks. I asked Dan to elaborate on the concept of the buyback principle and why it's critical for leaders who aim to delegate. How do we properly evaluate opportunities to buy back our time from our calendar so that we can replenish that activity with things that light us up, what I call green time, or make us more money, or ideally both. And I mean, I think that's the game that most entrepreneurs don't realize that they're actually playing when they start a business, is when you go from being an employee where you're trading time for money, and you go to entrepreneur where you're trading money for time, just through the nature of building a business, people are paying you for an outcome or a widget, and then you're giving them that thing for money and then you hire people to buy back your time. I mean, that's the game that every entrepreneur is playing. I just don't think that many of them understand that. And if they did, they would just play it better. And that's what the book unpacks is the process that I call the buyback loop so that you can avoid getting stuck and hitting the pain line where the more you grow your business, the more pain you're going to experience. And I know you mentioned it a few times, just the buyback principle. So the people who are not familiar with this, you say this throughout the book, and I listened to the audio books. I, I heard you mention it numerous times of hiring not to grow the business, but hiring to buy back your time. Can you elaborate on that and what are the difference and almost like the mindset shift is with that approach? 
the big idea that I share with people is the concept of calendar over capacity. Most people, when they hire individuals to help them in their business, contractors, team members, part-time people, full-time, it doesn't matter. When you spend dollars, labor to hire somebody, most people do it to add capacity to their business, right? I've got demand now. I need help with shipping. I need help with writing more code. I need designers because I have a design agency or a PR agency or whatever. I've got somebody that does fabrication, whatever it is. They're like, I've got a capacity problem. The challenge with that is you could hire people to add your capacity, but it actually doesn't make your life better. And if anything, it adds complexity, right? More people means more things you have to manage. And if you haven't bought back the lower value tasks to free up your time to go do the higher value stuff, then that's where you end up building a business that might have grown in top line revenue, but you actually make less profit because you hire out a sequence, right? In the book, I talk about this concept called the replacement ladder. And it's really the sequence of hires in the order that costs the least amount of money, dollars, to gain back the most amount of time, freedom, to then for you as the CEO to do the activities that light you up, that make you the most money. And if you keep making your trades using the buyback principle through that lens, then it's almost impossible for you to grow the business and not enjoy the process because as you do it, you're using your calendar as the map, as the auditing place, right? And I teach time and energy audits. Even today, this week, there's one meeting in my calendar that's orange, that's not red, but it ain't green, that I now have to find a way to get out of to either hire somebody or delegate it or cancel it. Honestly, sometimes we just got to delete. And the moment I do that, now my whole week is exciting. There's no aspect of my week where I'm doing something that I want to absolutely, truly enjoy and love. And that's just a really powerful place to get to. So I just really want to teach people the philosophy of we don't hire people to grow our businesses. We hire people to buy back our time. If we do the second, we get the first. But if we do the first, we don't always get the second. And I know you mentioned this earlier, if we could dig into it a little bit, just the replacement ladder. It's just fascinating, kind of going through the rungs, because I think a lot of times entrepreneurs got to go about this backwards, right? Like you gave the example of hiring the COO before hiring the assistant. Can you go through what some of the rungs are in the replacement ladder? Yeah. So what's fun about the replacement ladder is I remember when I was working on that part of the book, I reached out to my buddy, Alex Hermosi, and I was like, hey, because people kept asking me, if you're starting from zero today, what order would you hire people for your business? And I just like that thought experiment. It's an interesting one. Everybody's got their different origin story. Some people get it right. Some people have to fix it. But if I had a blank slate and I'm following my own process and I had to design what's the sequence of hiring and what do they take off of my plate, what would I give people as an answer? And I was talking to Alex and there's only one of them that we could go back and forth, but I'll share which one it is in a second, but I'll tell you where we start. We start at the bottom with administrative, right? And that's usually entrepreneurs that feel stuck where they just can't grow because they don't have enough time to get the current work done. The way to get the administrative stuff off your plate is focus on two outcomes, which is your inbox and your calendar. And that sounds scary for a lot of people. And when I say inbox, I mean 100% somebody else manages all emails that come to you. In any normal world back 50 years ago before the internet, it would be weird for somebody to walk off the street and just interrupt you in your office. Yet today... That's what inboxes have become for most CEOs is a public to-do list of other people's priorities, especially strangers 
on your time. So right off the gate, the administrative person should take over processing and then sorting through. And again, I teach it in the book, all your inbox and then managing your calendar with you, right? So giving them a template for here's what my perfect week looks like. Again, another framework I teach. And then having them collaborate with you. And I just have a daily meeting every day with my assistant and we just review the calendar. It's just one of the agenda items to just make sure it's directionally accurate, the things I'm working on, the goals I have set for myself, the space I need for the different projects, the conversations I wanna have, they're all in there. People are confirmed. If something cancels, replacing it with things that are high leverage, high value. I mean, I've had so many people, tens of thousands of people are reading the book every month and I'm getting messages on Instagram and LinkedIn. People are like, I bought back 30 hours of my week. I can't believe it. I don't know how I was doing this before. Thank you. So that's level one. Level two is delivery. This is somebody to help you with delivering the value that you've sold to a customer. So you can call this fulfillment. You can call this customer success. You can call it whatever. But essentially, now that I am the person who's got this specialty thing that I know how to do, and I have somebody managing my inbox and my calendar, I need to now have somebody help me learn the work that we're doing. In law, that'd be the paralegal, right? And then that way I can start to offload some of the delivery stuff and for me, it's all about the onboarding and the support. As soon as I sell something, I want to give that contact to somebody else to process the onboarding and collect all the information, the payments, the billing, all that stuff. I don't need to be involved in that. And then the post-activity follow-up support documents, whatever. That's level two. Level three rung on the replacement ladder is marketing, right? And this is where a lot of people get messed up because they start building a team, but they haven't built a marketing muscle. They don't have a system to predictably create leads for their business or demand for their business. So that's where when you buy back your time as the CEO, you should spend time documenting what's the marketing program. Do you have an affiliate program? Do you have a referral program? Do you have a social media process? Do you have a partnership strategy? What have you done in the past? And people saying, well, word of mouth, that's all we've ever done. Word of mouth could actually be amplified. There's a process you could define for, hey, when customers get a win, I'm going to ask them for a referral. That's a system you can document that's part of your marketing program. So the third level of the rung is marketing. And this is where Alex and I kind of went back and forth where it could be sales or marketing or vice versa. But for me, I put marketing as third, then fourth is sales. And sales is this beautiful place. And the reason why is the day you hire somebody else, this is one of the things my cousin and I did a call with today, he was struggling with 95% of sales go through him. So if he's on vacation, there's no sales happening in his business. And he knows how crazy that is. He just super critical. Nobody can sell like him. So I just showed him how do you break apart the different aspects of the sales process and just start with qualification calls and emails. Just give that to somebody else. Have them ask the seven questions. If these things are true, move them onto your calendar. But other than that, you should only be doing calls that you know are high quality. Hiring somebody to take over that whole function because you've documented it and somebody else can sell for you. I call this the freedom level of the rungs because this is now the first time, if you think about it, Michael, you have somebody else generating demand, somebody else enrolling those people into your product or service, and then somebody else onboarding that customer into your business for you to just do your magic. And technically, if you're on vacation, that can still happen till you come back and you don't lose any production your calendar might look a little different when you get back, but that is a beautiful place. And we're talking four hires, not 15, not 25, 
four people hired in the right sequence now gets you generating money while you're sleeping, which is the ultimate dream of every entrepreneur. And then the fifth level of the rungs of the replacement ladder is leadership. And I call this essentially your executive leadership team. This is when, as your business grows, you don't hire people to get them to buy back your time. You hire people to own an outcome or a department. And I think that's a big idea that people have to wrap their head around. It's like, how do I hire somebody to run marketing? How do I hire somebody to run sales? How do I hire somebody to own fulfillment or account management and then work through them to build out the organization below them so that I only maintain five to seven direct reports? And that's my recommendation for most people. We don't ever want more than five to seven direct reports. If you've got a dozen, I know what your life looks like. I know where your head's at. It's not fun, right? And unfortunately, the pain line usually happens at about 1.2, 1.3 million in revenue and about 12 people. When I get the call and entrepreneurs are like, okay, I can't do this. I'm clearly doing it wrong. Tell me how. And I'm usually like, just get the book, follow the process, call me if you're confused. But the replacement ladder clearly outlines that sequence because I think sequencing equals success. And if we follow that, it's really impossible for you to build a business that you grow to hate. Next up, we revisit my conversation with workplace drama expert, leadership and team culture consultant, and New York Times bestselling author, Cy Wakeman. In the world of HR and management, the desire for employee happiness and engagement is a recurring theme. However, Cy challenges conventional wisdom, urging us to look beyond survey responses when making critical decisions. They're interviewing the victims on how they keep victims happy. And yeah, it's a huge flaw. One of the surveys I talk a lot about to show how this can be flawed is Gallup interviewed people leaving their position and asked them the main reasons they're leaving. And I think it was like 50% of them said they're leaving because of their leader. So leaders got this big slap on the hand. It didn't matter how you led. If people didn't like it, they left. So we did something a little bit novel. We said, rather than ask people why they left that job, which you're just asking for an excuse, we looked at the same people over time, why they left multiple jobs. So when you track them over time, it's weird. They left all four jobs because of the leader. So then when does it not become about the leader anymore? So there's one thing to get a survey to build the headline you want to lead with on your next book. And there's another writing a book reporting out about really good research. And there's a lot of really good research lacking in HR and leadership. Drama in your workplace comes from one of the following three places. You either hired it, you allow it, or you are it. Of course, we all want to avoid bringing on emotionally expensive team members in the first place. But is there really a foolproof way to hack the hiring process to identify high drama candidates before you spend time, money, and resources onboarding them into your organization? First of all, get really clear about what's important to your organization if you're committed to a drama-free or at least drama-evolving organization. And I say this because we believe they did the bait and switch, but a lot of times we're the ones doing the bait and switch. We don't believe people when we see you know, the first time we don't believe them, the first time they show us who they are. We also say we want one thing, but when we get in and we see a bright, shiny resume where this person served under judge such and such as a clerk or whatever it was, we lose our minds over that, right? So we have to get very clear and be willing to go through quite a few candidates to take our time. And a lot of people have weird beliefs that they haven't looked at. Like a lot of people say, you know, oh, Cy, it's so hard to find good talent. 
And when I hear that, I don't experience that as an employer, but then I see the flaw in their logic. They think they have to win the talent war in their city for people in that profession. And I'm like, no, you just have to be the best place for high accountables to work. It's not a very hard competition. So like if you and I are being chased by a tiger, I don't have to beat the tiger. I just have to beat you. So I just have to have a clean workplace where high accountables love working. So I have to really clean up my own view and move my own ego out of it and really hold that confidence. I have to be willing to suffer some discomfort to hire the person I want. The second you know, way is um, rather than waiting for the interview as your data point, I like to always be recruiting. So if someone is serving me dinner and they handle a tough situation well, I'm like taking note of that because I can teach you to be a receptionist or I can teach you to be my personal assistant, but I, it's harder to teach some of this other stuff. So I'm kind of always dating out there. I'm always looking, who are my fans? Who's who for me in hiring, who knows my stuff, who's active on social media so that I don't have to have an interview be my only data point. When people do come in, I ask a lot of behavior-based questions. Tell me about a time in the last two weeks. I make it current, so you don't have to go back to the one time in college you screwed up. Everybody's screwed up in the last two weeks. Tell me a time in the last two weeks you've screwed up and uh, that you didn't deliver what you promised. And I let them tell me that. And I listen. Do they start out with, my boss was a nightmare. I got this dumped on me. If they start out with the backstory, they're not yet my candidate. And then I'll say, you know, I listen for eyes. Sigh, I didn't properly scope this. And so I ended up in a situation and I needed to, I love the word I. And most of us in interviews, you know, oh, they're, they're egotistical if they use the word I. No, if they're claiming credit, it's ego, but if they're owning it, it, it's important. And then I ask them, if I didn't hear the word I, what's your part in that? And then I test people. So I don't just have people come in. I have people for interviews. I have people come in in shadow and I test them as simple as I have my assistant call me out of the interview and I have her sit down and I just say, I'm on question three. Why don't you continue? And I want to see how they handled that. Are they resilient? Do they disrespect people younger than me? Um, because my whole company is young. So there's a lot of things I do like that. And then just because you hired them, I don't know. Depends on the state you're in. We have 90 days probation. And if you can't live up to your interview, we'll either extend it, but probably at my company, we'll just say, you know, we're going to be testing you and you're going to be testing us in 90 days. And that's tricky. A lot of people say, well, nobody's going to risk coming to you if they know they could lose their job in 90 days. Oh, yeah. High accountables will because high accountables have nothing to fear. Well, let's say, you know, you see this with sports teams a lot. If you're wanting your organization to be world-class and it isn't today and you know what accountability it takes to get there but you've had people there for 10 15 20 years that have gotten used to a certain standard and you're about to raise that standard significantly for them can you really get that organization to where it needs to be without just cleaning house Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the ways that we keep ourselves from taking any action is the ego story that if I raise standards, I'll lose everyone. And that just doesn't play out in the actual facts. You have three groups in your organization. You have a group that you will lose and you should lose because the fact that you're thinking a warm body is better than no body or that there's nobody else out there. And then you'll have two other groups. You'll have people who will be thrilled that the standards are higher 
and that people are going to be held to those standards because they were already meeting those. Unfortunately, you took work away from the people not doing their work and you gave it to the people who are overperforming. And then there's the middle group and they will come your way. So when people say, you know, Sai, I, I have these people here. They've been here 10 years. They're good people. They're doing bad math. It's not about just because somebody's been here 10 years is doesn't mean they have the skills to take you to the next level. It doesn't mean that they're even loyal to you. People are like, they're loyal to me. I'm like, you should have heard what I heard in the bathroom. They're not loyal to you. They are using you. Now, it doesn't have to be this big battle of wills. It's not your decision whether they stay and go, whether they grow or not. You got to get out of all that manipulation, which is ego, and ask them. Here's what the standard is that we're going towards in a year from now. Are you willing to join me on that path? I will support you. I have responsibility in this. I haven't, I've let you sit for a few years, so I will jointly help train you up. Are you willing to go there? And your willingness will become obvious with, to me with your growth and your development. And if you're not willing to go there, it's okay. I'm not going to hold you hostage, but most of us do really bad math. I hear it all the time. Sai, you don't understand. They're the only expert in the world on this particular topic. I'm like, well, let's see if that's true. Google it. Oh, that's right. You can buy that talent. You can rent it. You can part. There's a hundred ways to get that expertise. No one is an expert anymore in you know their own right. And then a lot of people are like, Sai, they're a rock star. I mean, they can't get along with anybody and I have to give them a private office and I have to have a handler. And I even at times have to, you know, sometimes take three approaches to talk to them. I have to see what mood they're in, but they're a rock star. And I'm like, stop calling them a rock star. It's not technical performance any longer. That's almost pass fail. The true value of an employee, they need to deliver what the organization requires. A lot of people have technical knowledge, but they won't deliver it for the organization. They hoard it. They have to deliver what the organization requires, but then they have to be growing and developing so they will assure us they'll be relevant into the future. And then a big number most people don't think about is What's their true cost? What's the cost of them in addition to their salary and benefits? What's their freakout factor? What's their, you know, maintenance fee? What is their hassle factor, their drama quotient? And a lot of people, the ego forgets that stuff and accepts it as the cost of doing business and overvalues the other stuff. We really do poor math. I once had a neurosurgeon, the only one in a three-state area, but I didn't lie to myself about it. We had him come through a different exit. We limited his um, you know, interaction with staff. We didn't pretend that this person was a rock star. We pretended, or we, we didn't pretend. The reality was he was a decent surgeon, although even a surgeon needs good team you know, skills, and he was all we had for now. But I think it's important because that's where people emotionally blackmail you. In a lot of cases, people are like, well, um, if they left, they would take all my customers with them. Well, what is your part in getting your company to a point of risk where their your customers impact or your customers interaction is only with one person who tends to withhold information from you. They're like, well, that's a big risk. I'm like, well, then put a plan in place to mitigate that risk. Because every time someone gives me a reason why they have to keep somebody who costs more than they're worth, it leads back to that leader's accountability level. Next up, we revisit my conversation with award-winning speaker, client experience expert, and New York Times bestselling author, Joey Coleman. 
In his newest book, How to Never Lose an Employee Again, The Simple Path to Remarkable Retention, Joey takes a deep dive into the eight phases of the employee experience and shares a clever mnemonic device for leaders to remember and act upon them. The reason all of them start with A is because I want employers to kind of think that if you get each of these phases right, it's like getting straight A's on your report card. Your employees are feeling that you're firing on all cylinders and you're delivering across the entire experience. So we start with phase one, the assess phase. This is when a prospective employee is trying to decide whether or not they want to come work for you. They're looking at your job description, your one ad, your classified ad. They're getting a feel for the position and role. They're probably going on the careers page or the about us page on your website to get a feel for, well, what kind of people do you employ and what's the culture like in your organization? In this day and age, they're probably checking to see if they know anyone on LinkedIn that already works at your organization that they can get some inside scoop about. And then they're going through your hiring process, whether that's submitting an application, submitting a resume, filling out a form, letting you know that they're interested in the position, and then going through whatever your hiring process is as far as submitting videos, submitting portfolios, doing interviews, all of the things that are leading up to a decision on whether or not they're the right fit for your organization, which brings us to phase two, the accept phase. In the accept phase, two interesting things happen. The employer says, this is the person I want, and they extend an offer. And if we're lucky, that candidate accepts the offer. They transition from being a prospective employee to being an actual employee. We then come to phase three, Michael, which this is a phase that most business owners, to be frank, don't spend any time thinking about. We've all probably heard of the concept buyer's remorse. Phase three in an employee context, the affirm phase, is new hire's remorse. The scientifically proven fact that immediately after accepting a job offer, a new employee begins to doubt the decision they just made. It literally happens in the seconds after they sign their offer letter. Why is this? Well, a couple of things happen. Number one, the dopamine release that comes with getting the offer, that excitement, that joy, that euphoria starts to fade along with the dopamine receding from the brain. And now they feel fear and doubt and uncertainty about the choice they just made. Should I have negotiated for a better deal? They said this is all they could offer and this are the usual benefits, but if I would have pushed more, could I have gotten more? It's also the case that top talent is probably interviewing at a lot of different places at the same time. And so when they accept your job offer, there are probably outstanding interviews they've done that haven't resulted in an offer yet. And they're wondering, well, if I wait a little longer, is that the one that would have been the better thing? And so that fear and doubt and uncertainty that they're feeling is usually matched by what from the employer? Oh, that'd be very little communication. We've said, hey, we've got the job offer. Great. We want you to start three weeks from now on Wednesday. There's no other communication happening. So in that affirm stage, we need to affirm their choice to work with us. We then come to phase four, the activate stage. Now, this is the first official day on the job when they show up for work. And the secret here is to keep in mind the immortal words of country music legend Bonnie Raitt. Give them something to talk about. What are you going to do to create an experience that is so remarkable that when they get home that night after their first day at work, whether that's to a spouse, their kids, their significant other, their parents, a roommate, when that loved one asks them, how was it? What was the first day like? You want them to have stories to tell. You want them to have things that they're excited about. What's fascinating is 74% of employees say that their experience on the first day determines whether they will stay for a month or not. 74% and it all boils down to that one day. 
We then come to phase five, the acclimate phase. Now, what's interesting, Michael, in the acclimate phase is this starts with the second day on the job and lasts for weeks, even months, depending on the role and the position. In almost every organization on the planet, there's someone who's responsible for the first day on the job. When I go to those same organizations and I say, great, who's responsible for the second day on the job? It's like cue the crickets. No one's responsible for that. So what are you doing to help acclimate those folks to this new role, their responsibilities, the relationships they're going to have in the organization? And how are we building that over time instead of trying to fire hose them all in the first day? After they acclimate, ideally we come to phase six, accomplish, where the employee achieves the goal they had when they originally decided to work for you. See, every employee has a vision of what they're hoping to accomplish. But as employers, are we tracking that? Are we paying attention to that? Are we marking their progress and calling out the milestones that they achieve? Probably not as much as we could. We then come to phase seven, the adopt phase. This is when the employee becomes loyal to you and only you. Most people listening to this podcast or watching this show will realize that they have some employees that are adopters. They're loyal. They're committed. What have you done to tell them that you recognize their commitment? What have you done to show them the appreciation for their loyalty and commitment? It's not enough to just keep paying their check. And last but not least, we finally come to phase eight, the advocate phase. Right? This is when the employee becomes a raving fan singing your praises far and wide. Few key things to look at in the advocate phase. Number one, how many of your employees are unprompted going on and writing reviews on Glassdoor? Are they writing them because they're excited or are they writing them because you asked them to write them? Number two, how many of your employees are referring new people to you? Lots of times when I work with my consulting clients, they'll say, oh, Joe, our employees are all advocates. I'm like, great. Let's look at the last time you had an open position. How many of the candidates you interviewed came from internal referrals versus your marketing and promotion efforts? Cue tumbleweed again. They're like, oh, well, only one or two, but that's maybe because, well, it's probably because you actually don't have advocates or the advocate didn't even know you were hiring. A huge percentage of employees say they don't even know what positions their employer is currently hiring for. This is low-hanging fruit for any organization. The last thing I'll say when it comes to advocates is advocates aren't just limited to your W-2 employees. Advocates can be anyone who ever worked for your organization. And the best thing you can do as an employer is to make your offboarding when an employee leaves as remarkable as the onboarding was when they came in. So many employers, it's like, oh, you're leaving? Let me throw a match and burn that bridge. You're dead to me. I never want to talk to you again. And it's like, why not have that person as an advocate in the marketplace? who when asked, hey, where's a great place to work? Or I'm thinking about applying at this place. They go, oh my gosh, that was the best place I ever worked. They're amazing there. You should totally apply. If we get these eight phases right, we get increased productivity, increased engagement, and the type of retention that most employers are looking for. And I appreciate especially that last part because that was going to be my next question, just building the case for doing this because I imagine there's going to be a lot of people who listen to this And they say, wow, that sounds like a lot. I don't even know where to get started. It's going to require a lot of time. This might require a lot of money. What would you say to that? It's definitely going to require attention and effort. Time depends on how deep you want to go. Money, don't get caught up in that because a lot of this stuff you can do for less than $100. It's more about you making the concerted decision as the employer that I want to create remarkable experiences for my people. It's never about the money you spend on them. 
It's about the emotions they feel when they interact with you. So what are we doing to create that connection? And don't just take my word for it. Research that was commissioned by Glassdoor shows that employees who have a strong onboarding experience, so we get that first 100 days right and they feel connected to the organization, it's an 80% increase in productivity and a 70% increase in retention. I don't know about you, Michael, but I don't want to just be the guy who's like, oh, love on your people, treat your employees well. That's great. But the CFO, the bean counter in your office is saying, well, show me the money. It leads to less money being spent on hiring new people. Because to me, the, one of the most shocking statistics in the book is the cost of hiring a new employee is somewhere between 100 and 300% of that employee's annual salary. This is real money. This isn't just like, oh, it's all about emotions and feelings. Yes, that's part of it, but it's about your bottom line as well. Yeah, and I think with that specific statistic, that doesn't even include the cost of replacing them, training, onboarding somebody new, transferring that knowledge. Absolutely. So there's all of this cost that I think many employers just don't even see. So it just pays to do it the right way. And I want to dig into some of the phases that you mentioned, particularly around just the early phase, right? When we talk about recruitment and attracting top talent, what are some of the strategies that you've seen exceptional organizations do, particularly with job postings? Yeah. So my favorite thing to do in job postings is to figure out a way to bring forward the experience of what it's going to be like to work there. So many job postings, if I were to go to the typical company's website or their Indeed or LinkedIn page where they have their job listing, and I was to pull that, and I was to erase their logo and name and replace it with any of their competitors, no one would be able to tell the difference. So the first thing we need to do is make our job postings about our organization and really let our brand spirit shine through. Now, that doesn't mean you go on and on about who you are as a company. What you should do is go on and on about what it's like to be an employee. Have quotes from existing employees. Have testimonials from people who are currently in the job you're looking for. Real names, real people talking about their experience. Some of the most innovative companies I've seen are doing things like creating a page on their website where for every position, they have videos and testimonials from people in that current role talking about what a day in the life looks like. Imagine applying for a job and going, gosh, I wonder what it would be like to be an account manager at Acme Corp. And you go to the Acme Corp careers page and you can see interviews with their 10 current account managers talking about how great it is to work there, what they love about their job, what they love about their boss, what they love about their career and their path forward. Now you're having a completely different conversation. And as we close out this special edition episode, we revisit my conversation with Alex Repas, a master of operational execution who serves as our chief operating officer here at CRISP. With over a decade of experience in the staffing and recruiting industry, she's helped hundreds of leaders hire and retain thousands of team members. During our conversation, Alex shared where most business owners go wrong when it comes to hiring. I think it's really the intake, right? It's understanding exactly what you're looking for. And I think that that requires a true intake process of, you know, what is this person that you're hiring for going to do? What is this person going to be responsible for? Who are they going to be accountable to? And what are they going to be accountable for? And so I think on the front end, and we've seen this here a few times, you know, we, we're not perfect, right? But we'll come up with this crazy new role and then we'll be like a weekend and we're like, wait, we got to backtrack. Like, what are we looking for here? And so I think, having a really clear vision of what you want is extremely important. 
Then there's the operation piece of it, right? And that's really a lot of it, yes, is a numbers game. It's this, you have to treat recruiting as the same way that you treat sales. And it's not about how many people can you get through the door. It's really about how many impressions can you make on the outside world for those people to want to work here? And what can you do to make sure that you don't have to constantly source and reach out, but that they actively want to come to you? And I think that a lot of companies go wrong with that and that they think, well, I've got this shiny building and then I've got this and that's the only thing I need and I've got a great website and so therefore they will come to me. It's a lot more than that. It's every reason and more of why I chose to work for Crisp. But yeah, building out a team, I mean, we really, we talk a lot here about the type of person we also look for, which is hungry, humble, and smart, right? You want to make sure that their values and yours align and that you are as transparent as humanly possible from the jump. And you don't always get it right, but you learn from every single hire that you make. So I want to ask you about something else see if this stays in the podcast. I remember when you interviewed and we sat down and we were talking about really our kind of our goals for the organization. You had told us at the time over the next year, maybe the next two years, probably half of the team, yeah. we're going to have to top grade them and yep. we're going to have to bring in new people. Yep. And I will say that like we were a good organization at the time. We had won, I mean, I don't know, 5,000, four years in a row, best yep. places to work. We were already an eight figure business. I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't a slouch. And obviously we doubled since then. But why, why was that kind of something you said? What, what was the thought process behind that? I think it's very common for young organizations to hire entry-level individuals, right? Because that at the time, and not to be rude or insensitive to you or to Jessica or to the business, that's what you can afford at the time. Over time, though, and as you grow and scale, you need true subject matter experts, right? At the time, we, we had never hired, you know, certain roles to have five to 10 years of experience that could teach other people in the department. We kind of you were the teacher for the entire organization. And that's not sustainable. And that's not something that I think you were willing to continue doing till the end of time. And so it's a huge investment. It is can be extremely tumultuous. And at the same time, a lot of people will not understand it, right? And so you take a little bit of a beating for a little bit. And then over time, you end up with a really, really amazing team with a variety of different skill sets, a variety and years of experience where you're able to really grow everyone in the room. And so, um, and it did end up happening. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So then, yeah. and then on that note, something that I think that oh. has really always impressed me about you and I think is amazing is that when we've had to part ways with certain team members, in most cases, they're leaving with like, by like giving you a hug. Like, how do you do this? You know, I think you have to remember that that is the most difficult part of the job. It is not fun. There are those days that I have it and I I don't emote. I'm not a big emotions person. I have a huge pit in my stomach. I get very much so a lot of anxiety when you're letting someone go. You're you're affecting their life, right? And and their family's life. But at the same time, I think when you're transparent throughout the process as to how their performance has been and what's going on, you know, they they tend to walk away with a little bit more respect for you than they did, than they would if if you just let them go without any type of explanation or, you know, without anything along the way. And so it is very important for me to let them know that we are here for them. You know, we've helped out plenty of people, you yourself have, of finding new positions or connecting them with other people just because they're not 
not the right fit at Crisp does not mean that they can't go and do the same job or be the right fit at another company. And so I think that that's really important is that you still show the value that they have added here, even if it was for a short time or, or, or whatever it may be. And one of the other initiatives, I know this was a, a big initiative of yours mm-hmm. uh, probably at this point over a year ago, was career paths. And yeah. I know when organizations think about career paths, I guess <laughs> if you can kind of speak to the thought process behind it, what was involved, yeah. what, what's been the outcome of that? Obviously, people are familiar with career paths are, but yeah. most organizations don't have them. Absolutely. And I think that this really became more really needed after the pandemic, right? Like people really wanted to understand where they could go and what they could do and and what their their path was and and what was going to take them from A to Z in the fastest time frame or the not fastest time frame whatever it may be, but it was a fun initiative. It took about 6 months to create. You have oh my gosh, we have what, over 30 roles here. And so each of those roles needs to see, you know, hopefully at least a four to five year vision for themselves. Not every person is going to want to be in leadership. So you had to think about that. Not every person is looking for, you know, monetary. So you have to think about that. But I think, you know, we initiated them and they'll constantly be tweaked, right? As we move forward. And I think we've talked about how we'll kind of look at them every single year, especially given that it was the first iteration. But it was really important for me that when people came in their first month here, they could see what they could do to move to the next step and to really drive themselves forward. And I think what that does for people is it gives them a goal, you know, a a bigger goal. Like you have your goals every single month of what you need to achieve in terms of your KPIs, but this gave them something to look forward to in the future in working with CRISP, which really helps from like a longevity perspective too. And I think one of the other important things around the career paths was that they were not tenure-based, right? So no. it wasn't just you simply existed and you breathed oxygen and that was how you grew. <laughs> um, and, and to your point, I think there was a lot of factors in the sense that, you know, there's ways that somebody can grow. They can become more specialized in the existing role yeah. they're in. They can move to more of kind of a management track where they're, you know, leading other people. Yeah. Their accountabilities can evolve. Like if you could speak to some of that. Yeah, I think that um, there's a lot of different components and, and people want to learn, right? So you have to add a, add a training aspect to it. People want uh, monetary changes. They want financial growth as well. They want to grow their family. They want to grow, you know, their net worth. They want, you know, to invest in things. So you had to talk about, you know, what would that monetary change look like as well? But the biggest part is I personally do not believe that you should just get a raise every single year for the simple point of being here for a year. Loyalty is a huge part of being at an organization. And I think it's very important as leaders to look at that too. But you can have an extremely loyal team member that does not perform well at all. And and those are the hardest to part ways with, the hardest, because they want to be here. They're crispy, they love it, but they just can't do it. And so, you know, you have options of figuring out where they can go, but we really wanted to make the career paths KPI driven and make sure that like, you know, it's not a perfect scenario. You don't have to hit 12 out of 12 months of your KPIs, but you have to at least hit a really great amount to like continue to like work for that base too, right? Like don't forget when you're making career paths, when you're making incentives that you're still paying them, you know, hopefully a healthy base to continue to strive forward every single day. All right. So for people listening, mm-hmm. let's say they want to kind of get out of the weeds of the day-to-day of their business. They yep. want to be able to work on, not necessarily in their business. Yep. They want to find themselves, let's say, whether it's a practice manager, whether it's a COO, mm-hmm. a DOO, an operator, whatever you want to call it. Yep. Like they want to find themselves an Alex. Yep. How do they get an Alex? Wow. Um, 
the first part is as an owner, what exactly you want to do, right? Like we always talk about your unique ability and what it is that your dream and vision and goal is. And then, so I think that has to happen before you actually find someone. It really has to be like, what is it that I want to do on a daily basis? And that can take a little bit of time to kind of formulate. But I think it's not necessarily so much finding an Alex. It's what are you bringing to the table where an Alex wants to find you or a great COO or operator wants to chase you, right? When you're looking for a job, you're just, you know, a lot of people go in the motions and they type in and they just like search, but like really, really great talented people are looking for organizations that they align to and that they can stand behind for a long period of time and that they can, you know, help foster and grow and want to be there till the end of time, right? I think that's really the the goal for anybody that we bring on or anybody that comes on board. But I think it's really more so about how you're branded and what you stand for and like what you're, you're putting out there to the universe that makes you attractive more so than what attracts this person, you know, or what, why this person would want to come here and so forth. I want to give a huge thank you to every guest who's joined me so far this year on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. And I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.